everyone. Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis. Today, I'm joined by Drs. Barry Casson, Steph Boye, and a very special host, Dr. Persha Porsha-Nazari, an allergist and immunologist and all-around fabulous human being. Persha, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Hey, Persia. Hey, Danny. Hey, Barry. Hey, hey you guys. Persia, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be on. I'm scared. <laughs> you shouldn't be. <laughs> so, so Steph, sep- separate from you, I I saw Barry the other day at the hospital, and we talked about how scared we were because <laughs> I was like, "Hey, Barry, like, you know anything about like immune deficiencies or anything?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, I thought you knew about immune deficiencies." <laughs> That's all well, right. I've already reassured you that we're not talking about immune deficiency today, but oh we can God. always do that another day. Thank. The Lord. Thank you. That's so Thank fabulous. You. Thank you, God. <laughs> yeah. So, so we'll hand it over to you uh, and uh, you can give us this wild case. Sounds good. All right. So if it's okay with you guys, I'll tell you a little bit about the patient and then we'll go into some uh, questions and your thoughts on the case. So this is a 29-year-old gentleman uh, seen in the outpatient clinic setting. And he's referred to with a question of NSAID, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug allergy. So he's got a medical history, including asthma, starting in his early 20s. He's got an FEV1 about 83% predicted with an 18% bronchodilator response on his last spirometry. He's maintained on uh, Symbacort Smart Strategy and Montelukast daily. Good symptomatic control, no recent exacerbations. His last emergency visit was over a year ago, and that was when he ran out of his Symbacort. He's also got nasal polyposis, and he's had prior office polypectomies performed by ENT in 2017. And unfortunately, he's uh, had regrowth of the polyps and is on the surgical wait list for uh, endoscopic sinus surgery and polypectomy. And he's got uh, allergic rhinoconjunctivitis, uh, spring and summer months mainly, takes his cetirizine year-round. Current medications otherwise, so Symbacort, uh, Montelukast, cetirizine, and he does pulmicort impregnated nasal saline rinses daily. When you get to the question of the actual NSAID reaction, so he describes two reactions to ibuprofen in the last year. Prior to last year, he'd taken ibuprofen without any issues. The first reaction occurred after he rolled his ankle playing soccer. He took 200 milligrams of ibuprofen and within 30 minutes developed visible flushing, facial swelling and angioedema, and marked wheezing. He was taken to the emergency department, but actually symptoms cleared up while he was in the waiting room and he was discharged after a period of monitoring. The second reaction occurred about three months later. He again took 200 milligrams of ibuprofen after breakfast for a headache. Within 30 minutes, he again developed flushing, marked facial angioedema, and wheezing. On this episode, he became presyncopal, presented to a nearby emergency department himself, was treated with uh, intramuscular epinephrine, intravenous antihistamines and steroids, and nebulized salbutamol, and his symptoms resolved uh, with treatment. Since then, he's been avoiding all NSAIDs, doesn't have any other known drug allergies, and uh, otherwise his uh, review of systems, including atopic review of systems, is pretty non-contributory. His uh, family history and social history, there's a bit of atopy, dad has allergic rhinitis, Uh, our patient himself works in law enforcement, lives alone, doesn't have any pets, non-smoker, no recreational drugs. He minimizes his alcohol intake because whenever he drinks, he describes pronounced flushing and sometimes wheezing as well. 
On examination, he's well, he's very pleasant, but he's very congested, has hyponasal speech. Otherwise, examination of the head and neck, there's no lymphadenopathy, uh, tympanic membranes are pretty normal. On anterior rhinoscopy with the uh, otoscope, you see large bilateral nasal polyps. Otherwise, cardiorespiratory exams are pretty normal. He's not clubbed. There's no rashes. Uh, some investigations. So in the office, uh, we've done aeroallergen skin prick testing for him, positive to some pollens and animals. Again, a spirometry showed mild airflow obstruction with an FEV1 of 85% predicted and again, an 18% bronchodilator response. And he's had a recent CT sinus that showed severe pansinusitis with maxillary and frontal polyposis. So for this gentleman, I wanted to start by just having you guys discuss a little bit your differential diagnosis for NSAID reactions in general and a differential diagnosis for his overall clinical picture. All right. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's start with Barry on that one. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> I know that you two wanted to jump in, but you're just going to have to wait for me to, uh, to add a kernel of... Uh, of insecurity to, to all of this. Well, it's the thing that struck me the most about your present, his presentation to you. And the thing that I think that I would probably begin to focus on is, is the reaction to alcohol as well as non and his, his responses, um, I guess his cytokine response, um, to the stimuli. So I wondered if that, if that's where I would start to think about these things, the nasal polyposis is certainly something that I've seen uh, with the asthma in other in, in in autoimmune diseases. So I think there's that's kind of that's these that's I think the um, the key log for me uh, of how I'd start to approach this. All right. So thinking more along sort of what's the mechanistic sort of cytokine or inflammatory pathway that's leading to this picture. Yeah, I mean, I think that at this point, I don't have. It's really, it really is the mechanism that's more intriguing to me than than a known clinical descriptor um, would lead to a specific diagnosis. So that's how I would okay. start. And do any of you have a general idea or approach to NSAID allergy? Do you guys know of the different types of reactions that one could present with, and how that might give you a clue as to their clinical picture? But before I answer that, c- could I just? I mean, I think my first striking observation was that this was like an illness script within the field of allergy that I've actually heard of before. So I would say that's what struck me. <laughs> that's what I was hoping for. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think we all breathed a, 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 a small sigh of relief there. Yeah. I, and, I'm, and I'm sure I will still totally botch and, and misunderstand what, what what's going on here. But at least this is something I've I've heard of. Yeah. So I would say like... What I, I'm I'm not at all an expert in this area, but what I think of is like, it sounds like an allergic reaction, but I do know that with anti-inflammatories, you can have like true allergy and pseudo-allergy. I know that much. Wonderful. Absolutely. Um, so like true allergy, uh, and again, okay, so now I'm increasing the likelihood of messing this up, but <laughs> I think true allergy for me is like, like an IgE mediated process. And then- um, pseudoallergy is sort of non-IgE mediated. Hearing this story, I actually can't say for sure. Like it sounds like he had a non-anaphylactic reaction, but with angioedema. It sounds like, yeah, I, I don't know if the, like it sounds like there was no urticaria and I don't even know if that would be helpful anyway, but I do think uh, that's something that I, w- I would want to know about. But basically, yeah, my approach here starts with allergic versus pseudoallergic or, or allergic versus non-allergic. 
And and Persia, what I thought was what struck me when you asked what the differential is for NSAID allergy, it reminded me of uh, when I was a, a rheumatology fellow, a staff asked me what my differential for scleroderma was. And I stared at them like a like a moron. <laughs> because I was like, I thought like, that was it. Like that was the end <laughs> of the, the diagnosis. diagnosis. Yeah, I'm like, that's on other things differentials, like <laughs> that you can't like have a differential for that thing that's so specific. So I, I actually didn't even know that there was a differential for this. So I'm learning lots already. And it's not <laughs> embarrassing at all. I, I was with I was with one of our community general internist colleagues up north during my fellowship now like many years ago. And he very casually in the emergency department, as he was sending me in to see a patient said, Stefan, what's your approach to neuroectodermal disorders? <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, approach, learn how to say yeah. the words. Yeah. You're like, can you and, hold that? I have to go to the bathroom for a second with my phone. Forget it. I did go to the bathroom that second. Yeah. Um, yeah anyway. So yeah, I, I know that feeling. Okay, let, we're about to learn something here, gentlemen. All right. So, um, yeah, no, I think those are all really good approaches and ways to sort of start looking at this patient and think about where to go with them. I really like uh, Stephway's sort of approach with allergic versus pseudo-allergic reactions because you can really use that for a lot of different drug reactions, but it's especially applicable to the NSAIDs. So when it comes to NSAID uh, reactions, there are five different types that you can have. Types 1, 2, and 3 are pseudo-allergic, and they're the most common ones. And then types 4 and 5 are the true allergic, uh, presumably IgE-mediated ones. And I would encourage you actually probably to, to take a read about this as general internist because it basically tells you what's going on if you can separate out what's happening with the patient. So the type 1 reactions are NSAID-induced asthma and rhinosinusitis. So these are patients who uh, get both upper and lower respiratory tract symptoms with ingestion of NSAIDs. And these are typically COX-1 inhibiting NSAIDs. And a really classic phenotype for this is the aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease, which we'll talk about. The other, uh, so the, the acronym for that is AERD, and the other one is sometimes uh, NERD or NERD because it's the NSAID exacerbated respiratory diseases. I think Danny has that. Yeah. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> we'll all have that after today. Mm. Type 2 and type 3 reactions are very similar. So type 1, think about it as the respiratory reactions to NSAIDs. Type 2 and type 3 are cutaneous. So type 2 is urticarian angioedema in patients with a background of chronic urticaria. So if you think of your chronic spontaneous urticaria patients, they'll almost always attribute worsening flares of their rash to NSAIDs. And that's true. That's a well-defined thing. That's a type 2 NSAID pseudoallergic reaction. But type 3 is when you get the urticaria angioedema with NSAID ingestion in otherwise asymptomatic individuals. So these people do not have a background of chronic urticaria or uh, you know histaminergic angioedema, but whenever they take NSAIDs, they get it. So those are the type 2 and 3 reactions. And then the type 4 is a bit of a grab bag. Um, oh, sorry, sorry. Types 1, 2, 3, and 4 are pseudoallergic. Types 5 and 6 are the allergic ones. Type 4 is a blended one. So these are patients who get both cutaneous and respiratory manifestations with the, um, the NSAID exposures. The true allergic ones are basically broken down into um, single NSAID or class effect minus aspirin. So uh, to date, there really have been no convincing reports of anaphylaxis to aspirin. 
So that's a really important thing to keep in mind if you have a patient who comes to you and says, oh, I'm allergic to aspirin. Because if you challenge them and you uh, you see a cutaneous reaction, it actually gives you a lot of information about it being a, a pseudo-allergic reaction and not a true IgE-mediated reaction. Because for whatever reason, aspirin doesn't seem to do that. So um, now that we kind of know about the uh, NSAID pseudo-allergic and NSAID allergic reactions, uh, where do you think this patient falls in? So just just to clarify, you're using pseudo-allergic as non-IgE mediated, is that correct? correct? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. It's not, it's, I see. It's, yeah. Okay. Thank you. And so this, just to recap, this patient does not have a history of urticaria. Correct. Yeah. And the presentation. with this or before. The presentation was angioedema. Yeah. Uh, and the and the drug was the same both times. Yeah, it was ibuprofen on both episodes. So I'm going to go with this is either a type three or a type five reaction. So type five being an IgE mediated reaction to a single NSAID. Yeah. Okay. All right. Any other guesses? So just as a recap, he gets uh, he gets facial swelling and flushing, but lots of wheezing, and he was uh, potentially presyncopal on one episode. Okay. So I guess that that involves airway. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that oh my gosh <laughs> makes it more type five, right? More allergic. Yeah, seems very allergy. True allergy. <laughs> So are there any things you could do to confirm your suspicions or diagnosis? Are there any sort of diagnostics that are helpful in NSAID allergy? Well, if we take the approach of uh, an allergist, we'll skin test for eggs, feathers. <laughs> what? Oh, what? I'm just, I'm just, hold on. I'm, I'm not finished. I've okay. got a list here. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> is, there, is there skin testing that you can do for this, Persia? There is not. Oh. Yeah. So, um, yeah, exactly. So we get a lot of these consult requests for skin testing for a lot of drugs. And unfortunately, many of them do not have any validated, uh, you know, skin or in vitro testing. But history is by far the most helpful diagnostic. So in this patient who's had a little bit of cutaneous features, but truthfully, it was mostly wheezing and respiratory issues for him. I'd say it was blended at most, but probably more a type 1 reaction. And um the reason I say that truthfully is because of his past medical history. So again, it all comes down to history taking with these guys. And it's the history of the asthma, especially the nasal polyposis history, and then the NSAID reactivity. Um, one thing we can do is challenge procedures, right? So if we can't skin test them, we'll often take the risk and do the challenge in the office so that we get an answer one way or the other. So does that mean and that again, you like, where... wrestle with the patient and like <laughs> push the pill into their mouth? <laughs> They're usually willing, and I get oh, them to okay. sign a consent form. <laughs> all right. Do- doesn't sound like much of a challenge is all. Yeah, it's so, challenging when they react. <laughs> so, yeah. So let me ask you. I mean, there, this is a – I can certainly see – I mean, this to reproduce this phenomena in the office, certainly on occasion, must have an untoward consequence. Yes? No? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah there's a classic saying amongst allergists, if you're not triggering anaphylaxis, you're not doing enough challenges. Oh my God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I, I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. So, on average, you know, outside of COVID, when we're not really challenging as much, anyways, we typically have anaphylaxis at least once a month in the clinic. But again, it's calculated risk taking. <laughs> so, we do it often to confirm a diagnosis, and we'll do it if we can see if maybe there's an alternative someone could use, for example. I always said all the biggest risk takers in medicine went into allergy immunology. <laughs> yeah. 
My classic, gosh. classic opinion, right? We're all skydiving on the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was a type one reaction. Yeah. So this patient actually very classically fits a syndrome that um, I think is probably a really good one for uh, internists to have in the back of their minds. And this is a very classic aspirin exacerbated respiratory disease patient. Mm-hmm. So, um, there is another name for this. Is this ringing any bells for you guys? Samter syndrome? Samter's triad. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very nicely done. So, Samter's is the old, you know, eponym that we don't really use anymore, but it is a triad. So, the classic clinical picture is a young person with uh, asthma, often severe asthma, nasal polyposis, and aspirin slash NSAID sensitivity. So, it's an interesting one. Have you guys come across many AERD patients? I, I think I probably have and not really understood the complexity of what I was seeing. And I, I probably like lumped things together or, or oversimplified. So, so yes, yes and no. <laughs> I've come across them on exams many times, but I'm not sure I've come across them in the real world a whole lot. I think I've, I've seen it on someone's past medical history, but I've never made this diagnosis. Mm-hmm. I have a I pretty, think- I, I'd like, I, I kind of want your help with like these kinds of patients sometimes um, do get run by rheumatologists, not for the NSAID allergy of it, but they have asthma, they have nasal polyposis, they have allergic rhinitis, and they have a high IgE, and they have some modest to moderate eosinophilia. And so the question is always, do they have uh, EGPA or Churg-Strauss syndrome. And I wonder mm-hmm. if these cases, because you see so much of this, how you kind of decide which people that you see uh, like this, that you might refer on to rheumatology or, or to uh, to another internist yeah. for, for their thoughts on that. Like, how do you how do you differentiate? Well, I think about it in the larger asthma phenotype, asthma endotype sort of picture, right? So these patients, you make this diagnosis clinically, and it's very easy because, you know, you've just described the asthma and the nasal polyposis. You just need the third factor, right? If they have NSAID sensitivity, you've got your diagnosis, especially in someone who, you know, fits the picture otherwise. So typically, these patients are, you know, the diagnosis is made is in, the, in their 30s and 40s, right? Peak presentation is between 20s to 40s, especially with the asthma component. Um, you don't really see this in in you know the sixth and seventh decades of life or beyond. So you know the young person with so you're the safe, classic Barry. triad. I was going to say, I, Steph, I was waiting for you. I mean, it's it's, it's not hard to accept this, but I was I was waiting for the line. A, a cheap shot. Just set you up for it. Yeah, that's a softball. That's a softball uh, pitch there. I, I like it. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, you know, if you're if you're curious about this, if you're wondering, Danny, you literally just ask them, can you take ibuprofen? Or if you take an ibuprofen for your headaches, what happens, right? Because these patients will tell you. And, you know, through my fellowship, I kind of didn't believe this syndrome existed. Uh, we read about it. We saw it on tests as well, but I didn't really run across any of these patients. And now I've been in practice, what, like four years now? And I've got probably 10 of these patients already. So they're there, yeah, and they're they're marked because their asthma is hard to control and their nasal polyps are so bad. I'd say the nasal polyposis portion of this is really significant for their quality of life, and they end up getting lots and lots of surgeries. So these patients almost inevitably end up with multiple surgeries over the years. So their ENT docs are the ones who often send them my way. So are the so can you tell us a little bit about how you treat these people? Like, is there anything that one is there anything you can do for the the NSAID? pseudo allergy and then two is there anything that you can do for like the rest of the the syndrome yeah absolutely so um 
It's an interesting one because it actually goes back to Barry's initial thought about, you know, well, what's the pathophysiology here? Like, what's the actual inflammatory mechanism that this is driving? And when you kind of know a little bit about that, it really tells you basically what you need to do. So in these patients, the key issue is their um, their baseline arachidonic acid metabolism is dysregulated towards leukotriene overproduction. So this, uh, this issue is of pro-inflammatory systemal leukotriene, so they cause bronchoconstriction, lots of nasal mucosal swelling, airway edema, and they do attract eosinophils as well. So you do see peripheral eosinophilia in these patients too. It's all acutely exacerbated by COX-1 inhibitors, right? So it turns off the, releases the break on leukotriene production when you reduce the sort of PGE2 synthesis. So if you block that sort of pathway, you get way overproduction of these leukotrienes and they get more of their symptoms. So management is uh, in part knowing that they are producing too many leukotrienes. So typically what you want to do for these patients is um, optimize their medical management of comorbidities, right? So because they're leukotriene overproducers, all of these patients should be on an LTRA, right? Like a leukotriene receptor antagonist like Montelukast. So that's kind of step one for pharmacotherapy. They really should be on sort of targeted therapy with that. You want to optimize their asthma management, of course. Uh, you need to optimize their polyps and sinonasal disease. So obviously, they'll, they'll need to see and they usually get surgical sort of management of that. But they need upper airway intranasal or, you know, nasal rinse uh, sinus steroids as well as their lower uh, airway steroids that they use. And then um, you want to very, very clearly tell them that they need to avoid all NSAIDs that are COX-1 inhibiting. And that includes acetaminophen at doses above 650 milligrams. Oh, so, wow. yeah, yeah. So most of them can tolerate through a low dose uh, acetaminophen. That's fine. But anything over 650 milligrams in a day, they usually run into some issues. Hmm. They do well with COX-2 inhibitors. So most of these patients can tolerate celecoxib, no issues. But I will personally bring them in and challenge them to that just to make sure that there's, you know, that I'm not wrong in the diagnosis and they don't have an issue with it. But uh, for the most part, these patients, the selective COX-2 inhibitors are fine. And then um, the big question is, well can we do anything about the NSAID allergy, like Danny said? And we can. So aspirin desensitization has a role in management of these patients. There's three main indications for that. The first is that uh, when you desensitize them to aspirin and NSAIDs, it actually really helps in regrowth of their nasal polyps. So if they're having a lot of need for surgical management, then you can desensitize them and that helps to prolong the interval between their surgeries. The aspirin and NSAID desensitization doesn't really help with the asthma control as much, maybe a little bit of benefit, but it's not a primary indication. It's usually more the polyp disease. And then the other reason you might want to do it is if they need uh, ASA antiplatelet therapy, for example, or if they need an NSAID for you know management of a rheumatologic condition or some other inflammatory condition. So when we do an aspirin desensitization, it's typically a two to three day office protocol that they follow, and these patients will all react. And so it's a bit of a stressful day for us whenever we do these. But over the course of two to three days, we basically ramp them up. And in order to maintain desensitization, they have to take a lot of ASA. So we typically get them up to 650 milligrams BID to start. They'll usually stay on that for a few months, and then we may drop them down to uh, 325 BID. So they usually need some you know, gastro protection as well. But uh, if you want to maintain cross-desensitization to the other NSAIDs, they have to be taking at least 325 of aspirin daily. So let's say you desensitize them just to get them uh, baby aspirin every day. That wouldn't allow them to use other NSAIDs. They would only be able to use an ASA-81, and they would not get the polyp benefit either. 
And then sort of uh, the more exciting thing about it is uh, we have biologics we can use now. So just this past August, dupilumab got approved for management of nasal polyposis. And from the initial uh, randomized controls trials that they did, I think about a third of their patients had AERD and there was benefit in that subgroup as well. So we know that some of the biologics are going to be really helpful. They're obviously very expensive, but dupilumab specifically improved um, the nasal polyp scores, congestion obstruction, CT scores versus placebo. And in the AERD and asthmatic subgroups, uh, there was lung function improvement as well. And then dupilumab is just the first. There's data for benralizumab, mepolizumab, and a little bit of data for omelizumab as well. So all of these things are trying to get indications for nasal polyposis as well. And which cytokine is it uh, is is it neutralizing? So that's a good question because mechanistically, right? If this is all leukotriene mediated, none of these are targeting that. But you know the the anti IL four receptor, and then with omelizumab, it's an anti IgE. Mepolizumab is looking at the anti IL five. So none of these, I think, are clear cut, and that's why none of them are are a quick fix. But they're all they're all seeming pretty positive, especially the dupilumab and benralizumab. Quite, a, quite. That's really. Thank you for the uh, the information. It's really been great. That's. I have to admit that. Yeah, I would have started out in the thinking mechanistically and ended up thinking mechanistically, and still not be very helpful. I think to the person who's identified the uh, issue as you have. I'm interested in, though in the treatment, uh, the acute treatment, because both times this person went to the ER. Both times they were treated as an IgE-mediated disease. Is that correct? Well, the first time his symptoms actually resolved spontaneously. Oh, so he didn't end up getting anything. But the second time, you're right. They treated it like anaphylaxis. So he got epinephrine and steroids and antihistamines and the whole shebang. And, And if you were the eMERGE doc seeing this person coming in, recognizing this in in the way you've described, what would you have done differently? No, I would have done the exact same. I think in that acute setting, uh, you know, this, you would treat it as anaphylaxis until proven otherwise, because none of the drugs you give are going to harm this patient in that scenario, right? The intramuscular epinephrine is going to help his asthma no matter what. Um, The steroids are going to help his nasal polyps, that's for sure. And the antihistamines aren't going to hurt anything, even though they didn't necessarily help anything in this case either. But um, truthfully, his case is a little bit more complex because he did present with more multi-system reactions to the ibuprofen. It wasn't as clear-cut. It's more his best past history that really gives away his diagnosis. But um, but for the most part, these patients, if they have NSAIDs, they'll present with respiratory symptoms specifically. They won't really have the multi-organ involvement that would indicate anaphylaxis. But if you if you knew this patient and you knew he was type one, as you described, mm-hmm. which was which was a non-IgE mediated, would that change your therapy in the office when when you're challenging them? What types of rescue therapy do you use? Yeah. So um, when we do an aspirin desensitization, uh, we generally have epinephrine on hand because, again, if they go into acute bronchospasm, that will turn things around, even if it's not anaphylaxis. We've got uh, nebulized salbutamol. We've got intranasal decongestants. Those are very helpful. And then we've got montelukastin steroids as well, although those are for much longer term. So typically, typically during the challenge, they just need Ventolin. The salbutamol will get them through most of their symptoms as well as the nasal decongestant. And it's a slow process. So you ramp them up slowly, they react, you cut back a dose, you keep doing it. And each day they're in the clinic for the full clinic day. In the emergency department, truthfully, these patients, when they have an NSAID or they have an acute exacerbation, you just need to treat their asthma for the most part. That's the big thing. Mm -hmm. 
You know, Persia, it is it is wild. Whenever we do these podcasts, I always find out about a, a disease I've never heard of before, <laughs> and, that, and I find that totally horrifying, um, but also but also really fascinating. That's a yeah, great I'm hoping this one would um, would uh, stick with people just because it is uh, it's just one of the asthma phenotypes <laughs> to know about, right? Like these are, these patients are definitely out there. I guarantee if you look for them, you'll uh, you'll see them. And um, yeah, I think uh, I think in general the the stat is that what was I, I looked this up earlier? Yeah, so seven percent of adult asthmatics have AERD, and in severe adult asthmatics, it's about fifteen percent of those patients that are AERD patients. You know, the thing that I, I really enjoy about this is that the the phenotypes of asthma, which was the end of the which was a diagnosis are just an explosion of of other diseases manifesting. So I recognize type, as not recognize, but I acknowledge types 1 through 15 that you've described. <laughs> um, but, but I think at some point, we are going to think mechanistically and make these, make these realities uh, a, a very different uh, understanding in the next few years. And, and I, I really appreciate your presentation. And I certainly appreciate the understanding that you've given us, but I'm fascinated by the next five or 10 years uh, with the biologics and the, the ability to dissect these further and further. And as you and I talked previously, and it's just unfair for uh, our colleagues or the listeners to hear about another case, but things that don't relate or don't seemingly relate Seem, that may may well have a relationship that we've never recognized, and and that's kind Absolutely. of really exciting. All right, so I think we'll we'll wrap up there. Persia, thank you so much for presenting that case. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Oh, can we yeah. please do allergy hour with Persia again sometime? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We can do the dreaded immunodeficiency hour if you like. <laughs> no, you know, oh my god, that would be the, amazing. The more of these we do, the more I realize, like, I mean, maybe there's someone out there listening to these, but I am getting such an incredible education through this <laughs> podcast. Um, and and well, I really appreciate it even just for that. Well, you're no, no, welcome, Steph. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and th thank you, Professor Enos. But um, <laughs> but I, I also feel the same way. I mean, it's uh, every day is an exciting day and a learning day, but uh, these podcasts really take us to another level. So thank you very much. We are supported by the St. Paul's Hospital Foundation and QXMD Read, a great app you'd be crazy not to use. We are produced by Nikki Thorpe from Bronick Consulting. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>